Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline. Today joined by Dr. Jason Wagner out of Washington University in St. Louis. Gave a very interesting talk here and something that I find incredibly interesting when I talk aviation and things, and that's a cognitive overload. A very interesting topic and a, a simple, I mean, it, it's simply a fact that we have to consider in emergency medicine. And if you don't, with the increasing number of distractions and, you know, those EKG sliding in front of you and the ability to actually have cognitive saturation to the point that it could detrimentally affect your patients. I mean, that's that's very important. And you actually did some really cool things in the talk showing some of those mind game type things of, of how you, you know, how your mind can be so focused on something that it gets distracted and it misses other things. And I think a lot of times we have that in emergency medicine. We focus so much on, on one thing or an area that we're very likely to miss the gorilla that comes across the screen. Um, so give us, um, one, give me your background because you do have very interesting uh, background. Uh, I mean, of course, anybody who does a lot of stuff with, with cognitive cognitive overload and, and situational awareness and things like that is going to have a military background. So give us some of the background and how you got interested in this particular topic. Okay. So uh, I guess I'll, I'll go through the formative parts of my background. And uh, the, the first, I think, big formative structure for me in my life was I was a, a competitive wrestler, both on the uh, international and college level uh, for a few years. And the the things that made me a successful wrestler really helped me be successful in the rest of my life. Part of that process involved realizing at some point I couldn't be a high-level competitive wrestler and a, and a pre-medical student. And that's where the next stage of my formative formation came, and that was when I joined the Army. And so I was an Army infantryman for for four years with Second Ranger Battalion in, in Fort Lewis, Washington. Got out completely, uh, went to undergrad, went to medical school, and then after medical school signed up for the Air National Guard where for almost 10 years I was a flight surgeon with an F-15 squadron where we deal a lot with, uh, with task saturation and cognitive overload when you work with pilots uh, in, in the cockpit. And then uh, more recently now I'm part of a critical care air transport team in the Air Force, and uh, as part of that, I take care of ICU-level patients in the back of a, a heavy aircraft with all the lights off and uh, no way to communicate really other than uh, through a little headset and hand signals. So uh, uh, clearly a lot of task saturation happens right out of the gate when you get aboard an aircraft like that, and work with B-2 bombers as well, and now I'm the, I've been the uh, program director at Washington University for the past uh, three years. And I, I think people, you know, I hear a lot of frustration when people start to hear those comparisons between aviation and medicine. And, and, and you know, we, I gave a talk earlier today right before yours um, about how that, you know, how you have to stay ahead of your patient with that, with that decision and cognitive overload, uh, the cognitive saturation. You know, what ends up happening is you fall behind the patient and then things are evolving or things are changing at a rate faster than which you can actually address them. So you're responding, reacting rather than planning ahead and being proactive. And, you know, very, aviation is very similar because if you get behind the airplane, then that's when bad things happen. You have to be ahead of the airplane anticipating what's going to happen. So there are very, some very good and accurate comparisons that we need to, that we need to consider when it comes to cognitive uh, overload, cognitive saturation. Um, so now let's translate that into emergency medicine. What are the challenges we face on the front line uh, in our emergency departments, whether it be in a level one trauma center or that community hospital in rural America? What are the challenges we're facing when it comes to cognitive overload and saturation? 
So I think one of the big challenges is that unlike any other part of the hospital, as we all know, our front door is always open. People are always coming in and they don't care how task saturated you are at any given time, how many patients you have, how many people are critical. They're going to continue to come in the front door and want their needs to be served. And so I think we we don't have the the ability to really control the the flow of patients coming in to, to see us. I think where we can control it, though, is we can control the amount of attention we give to given patients. So while we may be overwhelmed with many patients, it's rare where we're actually overwhelmed with patients that need our immediate attention. So I think uh, channeling your attention and, and oftentimes, more importantly, channeling the attention of your team can be really important. And I work at a large level one trauma center. And uh, just recently, we had a, a, a multi-victim shooting that occurred. And uh, we ended up with uh, five level one GSWs coming in really quickly. And uh, we're a large place. We have six trauma bays, 12 recess beds. I, you know, if, if I look the wrong way, four surgeons are trying to resuscitate my patient without me. Uh, so you have the resources you needed. Everybody was kind of panicking about this. And you just had to stop for a second and say, we take care of one or two of these at any given moment every single day. The difference is there's just five or six, but there's four times as many of us right now. So let's just divide up in teams and, and take our roles and perform like we do every day. And sometimes it just takes that step back to say uh, that individual or that group is, is I don't know, the way, I, the way I explained it wasn't really task saturated, but they were over responding. They were overstimulated at the event about to occur. And you just had to kind of pull them back and say, you can do this. You can control this event. Now go take care of it. And uh, I think that's a, a big component is, and, and the way I divide this in my talk is kind of not just cognitive overload in yourself, but also cognitive overload in your teammates. And I think more often you can help your teammates just stay on the right side of cognitive overload by limiting what they're doing or, or getting them to focus on the right thing. And oftentimes it's more difficult for ourselves because we don't recognize it when it's happening. Well, that was, that was going to be my next question is I think a lot of people don't realize the idea of saturation, uh, cognitive uh, saturation and overload. Um, and you actually do some things in your talk that shows how distractible your brain really is, how it actually physically makes things disappear. And um, when it comes to medicine as a physician, what are some of these things I don't that I'm not realizing on a daily basis when I'm working in the ER? I mean, one thing that I personally had to realize was these, and I mentioned it earlier, was EKGs. You know, we're, we're now, if you get within 50 yards of the hospital, you're getting an EKG. I mean, it's, it's like we got, you know, this patient signed in with toe pain. We got an EKG on them, their dog, and their car. And, you know, they're all sliding in front of you. And every single one of those is a distraction that, that takes your mind off that still is, it registers in that cognitive saturation bank. And so it takes, you know, it takes up a little bit of that capital. Um, what are some of these things that, that we are not understanding or that we aren't realizing as physicians? I, I think especially the younger emergency physicians coming out, but I think many of us feel like we're experts at what we would call multitasking. But if you look at the literature and you look at the, the data, we actually are incapable of multitasking. We can task switch, but we can't multitask. And um, I'm going to go off topic a little bit, but we'll come back, I promise. Uh, one of the things I talk about is system one and system two thinking. And so when I'm talking about task switching, I'm really talking about system two tasks. So system one tasks are the super simple tasks that we do every day. You get out of bed in the morning and do 
10 system one things without even thinking about it. You, you get up, you flip your covers over, you go to the bathroom, you get a drink of water, you wash your hands, you brush your teeth, you shave your face, you end up in your car somehow halfway to work before you really realize, I haven't put any thought into what I'm doing yet today. That's what, those are all system one tasks. They don't need any, any input. And then there's system two tasks, and those are the complex level tasks. And the examples I give is two plus two is system one, 17 times 24 is system two. It's solvable, but it takes focus and concentration. And so where we really can't uh, multitask system one tasks, we have the task switch. So you, or system two, sorry. You can do one system two task, and then you can pause it and go to another system two task. And you can finish or pause that and go to another one and then come back to your first one. But you're not actually multitasking. You're not doing all three of them simultaneously. So what we're actually good at is task switching. And so it's switching in between tasks. There's actually a, a study that came out just recently on uh, interruptions for physicians. And it talked about the, the length and the, maybe it was a poster I saw at SAM. And it was uh, the longest interruptions occurred uh, by novice nurses. And so they were the ones who needed the most focused time and attention from us. And uh, I think it's important to recognize who you're speaking with, what their baseline level of knowledge and capability is, and you have to adjust your messaging when you're talking to them. So if it's a brand new nurse, they're going to need much more step-by-step instructions on how you want, say, nitro managed on your crashing pulmonary edema patient that you want to start at 200 mics of nitro versus your veteran nurse who knows, like, all right, this is how Dr. Wagner does his pulmonary edema decompensated patient, and, and they can manage that much more easily. And I can just say, like, you know, let's do 200 mics of nitro, BiPAP, go. The, the novice nurse needs way more of that. And you can help control the, the amount of attention you have to give them that way, but you can also then help focus their attention where it needs to be if they're not capable of doing it themselves. Uh, and, and one other thing I want to mention just on the where these distractions occur. So there's a, if you look in your emergency department, you may notice that in front of the Pixis machine is a mat. And that mat says quiet zone or do not disturb or something like that on it. I looked at that thing for 10 years and never, I just thought it was a soft, cushy mat for the nurses to stand on at the Pixis machine for their feet. That's actually a, a study in, in nursing literature that shows that the most frequent cause of med errors before when the study was done was nurses being interrupted at the Pixis machine. So the intent of the mat is actually supposed to be a quiet zone where nurses are not supposed to be interrupted by anybody until they're done with that task. So that's an example of a nurse saying, don't interrupt me until this is complete, and they step off the mat, except none of us actually know that's what the mat's for, so none of us respect it. And I would argue we need a mat. I would say in particular for us in, in medicine for sign out where we have like a roped off area where it's like, do not disturb in, in less emergency. Cause I think that's where a lot of errors occur is during sign out when it's totally chaotic. I actually saw, uh, I think it was on the EM docs page. Somebody had a little tag on the back of their shirt, you know, a little paper that said, um, they were working on something unless the pay, unless it's an emergency decompensation, or I don't know, something goofy at the end, like my family, whatever, you know, my wife calling, um, you know, do not disturb until I turn, until I'm done with this. And we do need that in medicine, in emergency medicine. We have so much as physicians that there isn't, there is no concept of focusing. You mentioned the multitasking or really what it is, is, is fragmented, fragment, fragmented sequential, linear management, um, if we could put some government term to it. Um, 
you know, it's, we aren't. So if we can focus on that task, because I completely agree. I find that, you know, when I'm getting these EKGs slid to me and people asking questions and there's a phone call and there's something else happening and there's somebody yelling out in, out in one of the other rooms, you know, that's when I have an issue where I put in orders, you know, and come to find out I put them in on the wrong patient or, or whatever happens, you know, and those, those things like that are what, to have the potential of hurting our patients. So what are some of the things, you actually mentioned some resources in, uh, in the, at the end of your talk. Um, what are some of the resources and things that physicians, PAs, nurse practi- practitioners, the providers of healthcare can do to um, decrease distractions and you know, preserve that cognitive capabilities? Because as much as you think there is no limit, there is an absolute limit of the number of decisions and thoughts that you can have during a given shift. And there was that statement that came out, and I don't know where it came out just recently, that the average ER physician makes approximately 10,000 decisions in any given shift. And I can completely believe that. It may be completely made up, but I can completely believe that it's the case. Whether it's 8,000 or 12,000, it doesn't matter um, what the number is. There's an incredible, if you, you don't realize how many decisions, even simple ones, that you make in any given day, and I think EMRs are making that even more difficult with the number of clicks and things we have to do and hoops we have to jump through. So what are some of these skills that our uh, folks listening can use to um, increase their efficiency, decrease their cognitive overload, and actually increase patient safety? Uh, so I think probably step one, it's like like any problem we have, addiction or whatever it might be, uh, step one is admitting you have a problem. And I think the first thing is we have to be honest with ourselves that we lack the ability to, to, to be invincible. We're not superhuman, and we all have limits, as you said. So I, until, you, until you recognize that in yourself, you're, you're not going to care to read a book that I recommend. You know, so you have to accept the fact that everyone we work with, including ourselves, have limits. Um, and then I think uh, after that, that piece of recognition, then it's kind of how do I how do I minimize the impact that my limits have on my, my job? Um, and it's one of the silly little things that has, has been proven to be beneficial on, on people who make multiple decisions a day is to minimize your unnecessary decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some ways that you can do that, that that may sound like you're trying to be spoiled a little bit, but um, things like uh, picking out your clothes for the day I wear, scr- I wear the same type of scrubs to every day to work. So I, I open a drawer, I pull out the first set that's there, I, and, and the next set kind of slides forward because I have so many stuffed in my drawer, and I put it on and I go to work. I don't think about, like, you know, what pants am I wearing with my scrubs today. It's like I got the same uniform every day. If you're someone who chooses to dress a different way or, you know, you, you want to dress up in your ER shifts, pick out your clothes the night before. So it, there's clear evidence that every decision you make creates decision fatigue, and the, the fewer decisions that you can make prior to your job, the better and more solid your decisions will be once you get there. That's why uh, most of our binge eating and drinking happens after work, because we've gone through this, this continual barrage of decisions all day long, and your body's finally had enough, and it shuts down, and that's why you eat crappy food, you don't make good decisions anymore, you drink another bottle of beer when you probably shouldn't have, and then you buy a bunch of stuff on Amazon that you didn't need. Uh, and, and advertisers know this, and that's how they, they target their ads differently in the evenings when most people are post-work and post-decision. So then the other component is deciding what decisions are actually important for you to make versus somebody else to make. So is, 
is uh, your administrative side of your life? Is that something that your spouse can take care of? Is that something that a secretary can take care of? Is that something you can delegate to somebody else? So instead of you making 40 business decisions before you go to your shift, you've got four people making 10 decisions for you instead. And you know, like, do I really care where we go out for dinner tonight? Just make the decision for me. And then you preserve that decision fatigue for the important decisions. Uh, it, you know, I, I, I think that's, it's huge. And I, you know, it's one thing I've heard about is, you know, talking about codes and I know physicians don't like to give up ownership or responsibility, uh, but letting the primary nurse for that room run the code or the charge nurse run the code in terms of medications and timing to where your, your decision capacity is preserved for procedures and assessment of what's going on and what we need to do next, as opposed to having to, in the back of your mind, trying to remember your clock and having to remember what medicine is next. And I've heard several hospitals moving to that model with significant improvement in patient outcomes because you're doing exactly that. You're delegating those simple tasks, the other tasks that are just based on time, out to other people so you're not having to do them. And I think that's huge. I think being able to um, have other people do things with an experienced nursing staff, them being able to make decisions on pain and nausea, you know, nausea vomiting and and, um, food and things like that for the patients, I think that's huge because it prevents those questions from coming to you. And I completely agree. And that's one of the challenges in emergency medicine is the the fact that we have every ER has just hideous turnover for nursing staff. So you're always dealing with new folks. You're always dealing with with new people that are just trying to learn the environment and the the profession and how you do things the way you do them, because each of us practices differently. And I think that's one of the challenges we face. Uh, and you actually, in earlier, um, right when we started talking, you mentioned, you know, the idea of, you know, staying calm. And that's what I teach my students and my nurses. You know, people get into a situation, one of the greatest skills you can pr- bring to a room is to stay calm. Because, and I, I even tell my kids, nothing gets fixed by freaking out. Nothing gets better by freaking out. You just lose the capability to make sound decisions and to compute things. Your brain actually goes into this very caveman survival mode um, where it's just trying to survive and it prevents you from making good decisions. It's why people in in, in uh, traumatic situations make terrible decisions because they're freaking out. And so, you know, one of the greatest things in a room is stay calm. If you stay calm, everybody else stays calm. Um, and you'll find that the, the doctor, the physician, um, or whoever the highest uh, medically trained person in that room sets the tenor for the entire experience. And if you go to a code and you stay calm, people do their jobs. They can make good decisions um, in that way. And, and then you can you know, get the best results for the patient. But if you freak out, everybody else freaks out. And that's when, um, then that's when, uh, mistakes, um, when mistakes happen. So what are some of the resources people can look towards uh, to help? And we, we've, we've established, we've started on our 12-step program. We've admitted we have a problem. Now we want to get some help with it. So I, I think the, uh, the must-read book in this is probably Thinking Fast and Slow uh, by Kahneman, and it's, uh, it, it really delves into how your brain functions, both in and out of stress, and uh, how you can maximize your potential uh, utilization of your, your intellect in stressful situations. I think that's a, a good defining book. I think a, an interestingly applicable book for emergency medicine is the book On Combat, and uh, I'm by Grossman. 
and uh, on combat is about it's really aimed at police and in military but there are so many analogous situations in on combat that relate to the emergency department that I think if if you can get over the, if you if you're someone that is very anti-gun if you can get over the fact that it's about combat there's a lot to be learned about the way we function under stress because that's what the crux of the book is it's what do police officers and infantrymen do when they're under stress and the truth is that the way they behave under stress is the way that you behave in a hectic trauma or code when you're trying to intubate or put in a central line, and the principles they teach are applicable to both situations. So I think those are two really good starters. If you're a big educator, I think the book Make It Stick is a, a good book about how to properly educate and imprint knowledge on learners. And if, uh, if you're not someone that's gonna be teaching on a regular basis to students, I don't think that's quite as applicable. That's great information. I'm going to have to get me a couple of those uh, books. I, you know, I, on the other hand, gravitate towards every possible uh, military-related book I can find, um, especially if it involves special ops. So, you know, and so now we have a new comparison. We have medicine and aviation, and then medicine and combat, whether that be police or, or military. And I can see very well how how our jobs and our environment is very much uh, can be very similar. Uh, to those types of environments. How can, if people have questions, how can they get in, uh, get in touch uh, with you? So on Twitter, I am at the tech doc, uh, just like it sounds, at the tech doc. And then uh, my email uh, at my academic site is jwagner at wustl.edu, jwagner at wustl.edu. And it's, it's Wagner spelled the simple way, W-A-G-N-E-R. All right, and as for me, uh, like our Facebook ASAP uh, uh, Frontline page, as well as you can follow me at uh, Everyday Med on Twitter. Um, if you have any questions for me, you can contact me, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. Mm-hmm.